Okay, well, hello, everyone. Thanks again for joining us here at the HIS 296 podcast. This week, we are going to be taking a look at um, what, what, how we're dividing it up in this course would be the last of the three major phases of Japanese colonial rule in Korea. And unsurprisingly, um, the events and the nature of colonial rule in Korea during this period would take on some major transformations in the context of events going on outside of Korea and events involving Japan and their interaction with the global political and economic order, um, most notably uh, with the outbreak of the Second Sino-Japanese War um, to be followed several years later by the outbreak of the war with the United States, which brought Japan um, directly into the conflict known as World War II. And these are very kind of large events uh, that and in some ways shape the, the broader parameters. But of course, they filter down into the context of colonial Korea um, in a host of very important and specific ways, which we're going to touch on today, but also dig into quite a bit more in the class next week. And probably as good a place to as any to begin in terms of what I want to do today in the podcast, uh, which is to provide some kind of broad overview of, of some of the nature of the events and transformations that really helped to shape this period in time, and also to begin to think about the legacies that this period would lead. Because, of course, the entirety of Japanese colonial rule in Korea would have profound effects on Korean society, politics, economics, culture, and so forth for decades to come. But for, for some reasons which we're going to talk about, I think this last period, this last decade or so, comprising most of the 1930s and into the 1940s, in some ways can be seen as a, even a further ramping up or acceleration of the extreme control and shaping that the Japanese colonial um, system or the government general Korea um, would have on um, Korean society, as well as setting forth a set of choices that would inevitably lead to sharp divisions and senses of, you know, mutual kind of sense of, of recrimination and distrust um, within the context of post-colonial Korea, right? And so we hopefully will not only think about this period as a period in and of itself, but as one that was the forerunner to what we would consider Korea in, in the post-colonial era, which will be the topic we'll be taking up in a few weeks. So what I want to do with the, the remainder of the podcast today and and in a way that I, I hopeful, hopefully will start to get you thinking about um, the topics we're going to be engaging over the next few weeks is to focus on two important trends that emerged during this period and think about them in the terms of changes in geographic space and in, in land and, and particularly political geography and also changes in human space or human geography. And in, in some ways, in, in a very explicit way, the rise of or the rapid expansion of Japanese presence and ultimately establishing the puppet state of Manchukuo, which was set off you know, by a series of processes that uh, really accelerated after the quote-unquote Manchurian incident in 1931, leading to the eventual establishment of the puppet state of Manchukuo. This was an, an event that had you know, a geographic event, an event of political geography and the expansion of the Japanese empire into mainland Asia in, in a very profound and dramatic way, um, but one that would also 
fundamentally reshape Korea's geographic relationship within the Japanese empire. And I'm going to provide you the notes for this week. And if we look at them, we can see quite starkly that with the establishment of um, the state of Manchukuo and, and this, this puppet regime here, Korea moved from, in the context of you know, the main Japanese islands, which in, were the center of, of the Japanese empire, to a kind of peripheral area, particularly in terms of an area that was officially annexed by Japan. It was kind of an exterior or peripheral area. Um, with the establishment of the state of Manchukuo, Korea becomes a central aspect. You know, if we can take Manchukuo, Korea, and Japan, the main the main islands of Japan as one, then all of a sudden Korea is a, a central transit point. As we've talked about, what you know, one of the main enduring features of colonialism everywhere is the colony is seen through the context of what role it needs to play for the dominant or or colonizing state. And in this case, we can see just in, in by a matter and a stroke of a rapid change in the political geograph geography of the area that the Korean peninsula moved from the periphery of kind of mainland Japanese territory to a central hub. And this would have profound effects on Korea's role in terms of developing transportation infrastructure, in terms of increasingly seeing Korea as an important aspect of, of transit and communication between the main Japanese islands and its holdings on the mainland of Asia, uh, in, in Manchuria in, in particular. And, and in some ways, interestingly enough, and this is something we'll talk more about in the class, through this processes, as it would turn out, Manchuria, is it will become what I call kind of a cauldron of Korea's futures, right? And that it's it, in some ways not surprising, but at the same time, somewhat poetic that uh, the two kind of major figures of North and South Korea, respectively, um, now, Park Chung-hee, who we'll talk about in a, you know, later um, throughout the rest of the course, um, wouldn't really come onto the scene in a major way until 1960, so there was some delay there, um, but w w is you know, certainly the central figure in post-colonial South Korea. And certainly Kim Il-sung, who would basically rule North Korea for decades um, up until the 1990s, you know, for nearly 40 years, both of them established themselves in, in, in important ways within the context of Manchuria. And that reflects a, a deeper point about the role of Manchuria and Korea, the, the evolution of Korea's role within the Japanese empire and the place that Manchuria would play as a site of migration, as a site of people looking for work, as a site of people looking to resist, like the communist groups um, tied to the, the Chinese Communist Party, like Kim Il-sung, to young soldiers like Park Chung-hee looking to gain status and respect through pursuing a career as an officer in the Japanese Imperial Army, right? And so we can see Manchuria as a, as a, a home to all of these Korean futures, right? And so it's a very interesting dynamic that I really want to uh, explore more in the course. And it also leads us to a, a second major feature that would accelerate and, and really play a prominent role during this time. And that is, as we mentioned earlier, in terms of human geography and movement of peoples. And um, one thing that really characterized Joseon society, as with most uh, more traditional agrarian societies, is there was very low mo human mobility. People tended to basically live and stay where they were born. Um, and what we're going to see, and, and even during the colonial period, there was some more movement, there was some more in-country migration from rural to urban areas. But by and large, a lot of the social patterns in terms of you know where people live and human geography stayed fairly the same. And that we are going to see is going to dramatically change during the 1930s and into the 1940s, where hundreds of thousands, or, or more likely, or better put, millions of Koreans 
um, moved from within Korea, moved from rural to urban areas. Hundreds of thousands of Koreans moved to Japan, many of them staying, uh, many with ancestors still living in Japan today. And hundreds of thousands of Koreans would um, move to um, places on um, the Asian mainland in, in China, um, in Manchuria, um, seeking employment in industry and so forth, right? And so this was a period of dramatic social upheaval in terms of taking a population that had been largely sedentary and largely very much tied to the locale and communities to which they were born and having millions of people moving from one place to another. And this would have, again, profound effects on the nature of not only society and human organization and in human geography within South Korea, but also um, profound social effects on how Koreans came to see themselves, um, their understanding of themselves um, in terms of notions of being agricultural workers versus being industrial workers. And these are all things we, themes we will pick up um, in the class next week. But I think that's another really important aspect of this period that had lasting and profound effects on the nature of Korean society, both in the North and the South for decades to come, and, and one could argue even into the present day. And, and lastly, on the note, as the title for the notes I'm going to um, distribute for this week, uh, this is in some ways a period where, Kore you know, understanding of how um, the Korean Peninsula and the Korean people experience what is often referred to as the age of total war. And, and total war is a notion that all of society is in some ways viewed as an asset in the war effort. And in that sense, as Japan entered this its own era of total war and its war with the United States and China and so forth, Korea would increasingly be seen as a war asset and an asset in terms of its uh, natural resources, in terms of its agricultural resources, but perhaps most dramatically in terms of its human resources. And that shift and the folding of Korea into this age of total war through its position as a colony and territory of the Japanese empire would have a host of profound and lasting effects. Okay, well, I'm excited to see your questions and comments as always, and have a great weekend and see you in class next week.